Welcome to Brandon Avat. We are really delighted to be joined by Simon Blackburn, one of the world's greatest philosophers, and we're going to be talking about one of the most important topics of the moment, truth. Simon, would you like to start with a thought experiment? Pontius Pilate faced with Jesus at one point in some kind of exasperation. I said, what is true? Um, and this has been gone down in the literature, especially due, I think, to Francis Bacon writing at the, at the beginning of the 17th century, as jesting Pilate said, asked, what is truth? And would not wait for an answer. Uh, well, I think, I'm not sure why, I'm not sure why Bacon thought he was jesting. It's not obvious in the biblical account, but it is certainly true that he asked the question. And I think it's certainly true that he possibly wisely didn't wait for an answer. Now. Of course, the, you could say Pilate had an excuse because presumably Jesus was saying things like, I the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. And of course, there's something quite odd about somebody saying, I am the truth. It's a strange claim of an identity. Are you the truth that I've got a cup of tea here? Are you the truth that the USA is larger landmass than Great Britain? It's, it's a strange thing to, to say. So. Anyhow, the point is that the way the theory of truth has developed over this, over the 20th century in particular, you get the idea that Pilate's was a bad question for other reasons. And the other reasons are that the noun truth is an abstraction and it's very dangerous to ask and try to answer questions in terms of abstract ideas. The leading authority, I think, on that was Charles Sanders Peirce, who said, we must not start with pure ideas, vagabond thoughts that tramp the public highways with no human habitation, but with men and their conversations. So basically the moral is don't ask about truth, but ask what's going on when people say that something's true, investigate whether something's true, deny that something's true. These are all going on in everyday conversations all the time. And I think that's where our, our data start. So I think that's the, the moral of, um, the pilot story is first off, look out for somebody who says I am the truth. That's a very strange kind of assertion. And secondly, how look out for people who go straight in and say, oh, notion of truth is so confusing. I don't know what to make of the notion of truth. And start with the abstraction, because in everyday life, we don't start with abstractions. We start with particular applications. So finally, another thing to say to Pilate is, and this sounds a bit grim, but you could say it. He says, he asks, what is truth? And the answer, a good answer, I think, would be, you tell me. Not, of course, you tell me what truth is. That's asking too much. But you tell me what you're interested in. And I'll then tell you what the truth amounts to. So if Pilate is interested in whether Septimus's chariot is faster than Sixtus's chariot, that's something you can sort out. You can set them to do a race and you can see which chariots are faster. If he's asking whether the landmass of the USA is bigger than the landmass of Israel, then again, you, you have devices and methods for setting about answering it. Maybe difficult to answer it and then and no doubt questions where answers will remain forever beyond our ken, particularly historical questions, of course, because history gets lost in time. But when we've got a question which admits of a possible answer, generally speaking, if we understand the question, we understand the methods that would be required to answer it. So I think the right answer to Pilot is you tell me, not you tell me what truth is, you tell me what you're interested in. And of course, in the context, he should have been interested in whether this guy in front of him was guilty of some uh, crime against the state. He probably got the answer to that wrong, but leave that. So what's interesting about this to me is this notion that the method for arriving at the truth will be context dependent. Mm -hmm. And I think what's particularly interesting, I think Mark alluded to it in the way he introduced you, is that Truth has become so contentious in the political realm today. You get, specifically in the United States, you get people on the left and people on the right accusing the other of having no fidelity to the truth. And what, what has happened, especially in media, is this description of our political world today as a post-truth environment. I, I wonder what the method is now at arriving for the truth. I know that personally, when I'm interested in an issue, it's so difficult 
to arrive at a truth around it if that issue is politicized in any way. So often what I'll do is I'll often open news sites on both sides of the issue. So I'll open Fox News and I'll, I'll <laughs> open CNN. And, uh, and at the end of it, I struggle to come up with the truth. How do we assess the methodology for truth in a post-truth world? That's a huge question, of course. And again, I think I'd start by reminding people, this is a, um, a rather Cambridge habit, that there are lots of questions to which this skepticism, if we can call it that, doesn't apply. If, if I want to know my way around the British Isles, I use an ordnance survey map that completely or as near as anybody can find out reliable. And they tell me the truth that, for example, Oxford is slightly south and very west of Cambridge, or London is almost directly due south of Cambridge. And those are not contentious issues. They're not issues on which you need to open websites, two different websites, to try and get a balanced view. In a phrase made famous by another British philosopher, David Wiggins, there are no two things to think about. It's done and dusted. It's settled. And there we can start talking about knowledge. Now, of course, when people talk about post-truth, they have in mind, as your question rightly indicated, especially questions where the public or the consumer, as you might say, has rather little independent chance of getting at the truth. I, I'm not privy to the councils of Washington or Moscow. So if somebody tells me that Putin says this, that, or the other, or that even Joe Biden says this, this, that, or the other. I cannot conduct an investigation sensibly, or if I do, it will consist in finding testimonies from other people. And then too, we might find a confusion of witnesses. Lawyers think trained to find even eyewitness testimony, frequently very suspicious. We have distorted memories. We don't remember what we saw. We don't relate it accurately. We deceive ourselves about the certainty of the deposit of uh, experience. So we think we experienced something or other, and we didn't. And that's frighteningly common. I heard somewhere of a Chicago, University of Chicago law school professor, I think, who in his first year class, first class in the first year, had an actor charge into the room, discharge a blank shot in the air, utter something and leave. The task of the students was to write down what they'd see. Got the most extraordinary answers. The students, sub-students may have been taking the mickey, but assuming the students were as freshmen would be, they're naturally trying to please the professor. So they put down what they thought they'd seen and it was all over the place. They got the number of shots he fired wrong. They got what he was wearing wrong. They got what he said wrong. They got how long he was in the room for, what wrong. And so there's a huge variety. So human testimony is very palatable. And that's, that raises the, the danger. It's of course, particularly palatable when emotions get involved and almost by definition, that's going to give us politics, um, because that's going to be where people care about the upshot. They care about the reputation of Boris Johnson or the reputation of Joe Biden, or the, or they care about trashing Trump or the other way around. And so you get conflict and you get. Um, fact, it's an old saying that the first casualty of war is truth. So even in these little kind of coffee party wars, we're going to get differences of opinion and they're going to get different assessments of liability and so forth. Now it'd be nice if there was a concept of objectivity, which could give the verdict in these cases to one side or the other. So we all like to think my opinion is objective, is sub subjective, is formed in the wrong way. And sometimes that's true. I think people do form opinions in the wrong way. Again, looking back to C.S. Peirce, Charles Sanders Peirce, he wrote a very fine essay in a general magazine, this wasn't for professional philosophers, called On the Fixation of Belief. And he isolated, I think, three families of ways you can fix your belief. One is to find what you'd like to believe and to believe it. That's as it were, the weakest way of doing it. 
you'd like to believe that your child is innocent of bullying at school or whatever it is. So you believe it and you come down hard on the teachers who say the horrible little bully. That's one method of fixing your belief and not a very admirable one. Another much more common one is to accept your beliefs from a prevailing ethos or prevailing cultural voices. And that's the method of religion, for example. Very few people dare to suppose they've been spoken to directly by God, but an awful lot of people think that somewhere over the hill or somewhere in history, there was somebody was spoken to directly by God, and I'm going to believe what he says. And that, of course, is reinforced by the devices of um, priestcraft and religious intolerance. And Peirce had very little time for that either. He thought that was a, as Kant thought, that was a childish way of forming belief, just to believe what you're told because you're told it. And the third way of forming belief was to pursue such methods as you can find of objective inquiry. And of course, the methods of inquiry that um, we all, whether we say so or not, actually do owe some allegiance to and are allegiance apt to take seriously are the methods of empirical science, the methods that have, through careful observation, through careful experiment, through repeated experiment, through surviving repeated attempts at falsification, you come up with the uh, truth, which for the moment stands firm. So, for example, Chinese medicine, unfortunately, will tell you at present that some concoction of um, ground-up pangolins and other things will cure AIDS. That cure AIDS, I'm sorry, cure COVID, they cure AIDS, one's as likely as the other. And that, of course, is something that's got into the Chinese consciousness through tradition, through history, through being repeated, through children being told it by their parents without there being a shred of scientific evidence for it, because there have been no double-blind clinical trials, there have been no attempts to falsify it, which uh, required splitting the population into two groups, behaving one way to one, the other way to the other. Those are the devices of modern empirical research, and they provide a very good way of sifting truth from falsehood, because they deal in reliability. And what we want from truth is reliability. Truth matters to us because we base our behaviors on it. It determines how we act. And we want to act reliably. We want success. And so we want the methods that give success. And reliability gives success. As I put it once in one of my books about truth, even Prince Charles, who's a doughty critic of science and a doughty believer in homeopathy, even Prince Charles doesn't fuel his helicopter with benzene diluted one part in a five million to water. He may take it, believing it's going to cure whatever illness he's got, but he's not going to go flying. And he might try, but he's not going to take off. So that's failure. So the methods of science give us reliability and reliability is what matters to. And when they do, we call them objective. That is, it's not just a matter of subjectively believing what you'd like to believe. It's not just a matter of taking your opinion from the culture. It's a matter of trusting the trustworthy experiments. Now, of course, to return to where we started with politics, I can't conduct trustworthy experiments myself. Or if I can, it's in a very limited domain. I can't separate populations into two groups and give some of them something and some of them something else and collate the results and do the statistics and come up with answers. That takes a research team. It takes um, funding. It takes time and effort. And of course, all I can do is trust. Some people are not others. But what I can do, I think, is find a sort of meta level, at the meta level or second order level. I can be sure that insofar as I trust whatever I'm told about things, it's because of these are trustworthy sources. So I can conduct a kind of observation into trustworthiness of sources. 
So to start with your original example, I would say that CNN has a better track record than Fox News. <laughs> I think you've raised a whole range of reasons why we find it difficult to find out what's true. You can have conflicting bits of evidence. You can have motivated reasoning. People want things to be true for their political agenda or their other normative beliefs. And you point out that one way to find out what's true, if you're in a position where you can't get the firsthand data, is to go and look at those uh, those areas where we say these people are trustworthy. It turns out that they've produced more true results than not. Hmm. But at the same time, we seem to have a real crisis in terms of who we can trust. So. We've had a lot of motivated reasoning in the sciences yeah. during the pandemic, a, a lot of partisanness from the press. And mm -hmm. there's also the, the broad scale replication crisis in academia. There's been a, an ongoing debate, for example, on whether the Dunning-Kruger effect is replicable or not, whether it's a matter of statistical noise or not. Yeah. So there's so many things that I think people have said, we can take this for granted, it's settled science. And it turns out that it's not very settled. Or there's been some underlying error. And the problem as well is that there's we've clouded the kinds of research that people can do because we've said this is immoral research or we think it's politically incorrect research or that you ought to go a certain way. One of the ones that's become quite famous during the pandemic was this notion that people really stay at home, that you're going to kill your grandmother if you go um, to a public beach, for example. But during the Black Lives Matter movement, you had a thousand doctors signing an open letter saying it's okay to go and protest this terrible injustice because the real pandemic is racism. Now, it seems that you could say there's a good moral case to be made for why you ought to go and protest, but that's very different from how, you know, what your likelihood is of being a super spreader. And yeah. so we see the norms starting to infect the facts. Now, you've given us a good account of how we can find out what's true in the empirical case. Can we do any of that in the normative case? It's certainly true, I think, that historically it's proved easier. I'll come back to some of your doubts about scientific method in the, in the, or at least scientific method insofar as it exists at present in a moment. But I think it's certainly true that historically over the four centuries since people really started doing science as we recognize it, the track records have been very good. You couldn't be using an iPhone. We couldn't be using Zoom unless science had got an awful lot right over the preceding centuries. So there's a, as it were, a litmus test for trustworthiness, which science at its best certainly seems to pass. It's not to say that your iPhone won't break down or that the Zooms won't suddenly throw us all out or anything like that, but it is to say that it's the best we've got. Again, to go back to Peirce, he said that in, in, in seeking the truth, you have to recognize that you're standing on a bog. And all you can say is that the ground here seems to hold for the time being. <laughs> that is, there's always an element of fingers crossed. There's always an element of, which of course we know whenever we get into an aeroplane. But for all that, we think that the engineering science has done jolly well in throwing millions of these steel tubes around the sky with never an accident, one in a million. I think that we do have data, or we, to suppose that we don't have data of the differential reliability of science versus, say, traditional science or the eating of pangolins or whatever it is, I think that's just wrong. I think that if somebody thinks that, then I think it's very hard to argue with them. You're just trying to tiptoe past. Now, when it comes to ethics and the arts, for example, the aesthetic and moral judgment, it's very difficult to point to a track record of success with the same, in a sense, unquestionable or very doctrinally questionable track record of trustworthiness and success. And we're all aware of the revolutions of taste, not only in aesthetics, but also to some extent in ethics. If I think of the world I grew up with or in as opposed to the world we have at present, there's far more toleration of things like diverse sexualities, much more. There's far less toleration of, for example, sex with minors, which is put down under the word paedophilia and is very much a no-no across certainly Great Britain and I'm sure the United States. That's why Trump calls Hillary Clinton a paedophile. 
So for, for the dirtiest word he can find. The so those are changes. One of them would say in in and it was a liberalization, the other was not, unless you call it a liberalization of children, which might be the right way to think about it. And certainly we're more illiberal in many respects. For example, the levels of vitriol that are thrown around in the public sphere are way beyond anything I can remember in my young days. And uh, I think that's a shame. It's a coarsening of the public square. So there are revolutions and some we might stand behind and some we might regret, but there is, there's no arc of truth in the same way that there seems to be in the success of empirical science or physics and chemistry. And, or if there is an arc of truth, it's going to be very contested which way it's pointing. I think that's a pity. Funnily enough, I think that actually the situation in some respects is better in aesthetics than it is in ethics, because in ethics, it's relatively hard, I think, to get a handle on who's worth listening to. And this goes back to my story about the meta theory, that is, first of all, trying to find trustworthy sources. I think there are people who identify themselves as having expertise in aesthetics more readily than the people who identify themselves as having expertise in ethics. For example, somebody might be able to tell very quickly and almost as a look whether a painting is an original by Rubens or whoever it might be, or a fake. And if somebody does that and the science then bears him out, it's true, these pigments were all invented in the 20th century, so it can't be by Rubens, then you start to respect his judgment. You may not know how he forms his judgment. He may not know how he forms a judgment, but he sees that it's the one thing or the other and subsequent investigation confirms the opinion. A very nice example is uh, birdwatch. Birdwatchers acknowledge some people as absolutely fantastic at it. They can see at a distance that is one thing or another. Whereas to the average person, even the average birdwatcher who's quite up on these things, they can't tell. How do they do it? And then often it's a shrug of the shoulders. They don't know how they do it. They don't have to know, actually, but once they've established that they're good at it, reliability again, then if they say that's a semi-palmated semi stint, you didn't realize it was a semi-palmated stint, you listen. They're worth listening to. The same is very unlikely to be true in ethics. It may be true. There's certainly people who can judge character quicker than others. So if it's a moral judgment that's coming out, there's, there are people who I think are faster. Famous case in Britain was a ghastly man called Jimmy Savile. You may not have heard of him, but he was a, a child entertainer, very popular on children's TV. And he used the prestige. This was in the seventies, eighties. He used the prestige he gained as a way of intruding himself into the lives of young people when he sexually abused them. And this only came out after he died, but it came out and everybody's, then lots of people jumped up and said, oh yes, I always thought there was something creepy about it, but they didn't say so at the time. Now, of course, if somebody had said in the 1970s or something, that guy's a horrible creep keeping him out of here, we would respect their judgment. We'd say they got it right. They saw something in his manner, which was unhealthy and improper and so on. And where other people didn't, they thought he was just being a charming character. I think there are people who got Boris Johnson quite early in his life. The, the headmaster of Eton, who wrote a report on him, said that he seems to think that the rules apply to other people and not himself. And spot on. Exactly what's, what Pete's saying, and it's needed saying all his life about Boris Johnson. And amongst the rules of telling the truth and so on. I think in some respects, you can learn to trust and admire people's judgments. But of course, when in ethics, we're often dealing with some very highly abstract. Again, we have to be careful here. This is straying into territory I don't like. But abstract principles, how much of your income is it right to give to charity? Or how much is it obligatory to give to charity? And that sounds like an examination question. 
on which you're going to get a lot of different answers. And it's very difficult indeed to say, oh, the Jewish tradition is accurate on this, or the Islamic tradition, or the Christian tradition, or the tradition of some other body. They may come up with different figures, give 10%, give 5%, give 25%, give everything you can afford, and you give everything until you've diminished your own standard of welfare to that of the least, least well-off member of your community. So they're more or less stringent answers to that sort of question. But it's very difficult to say that the Rabbi X or Priest Y has, is reliable, is trustworthy on this. When he says it's 15%, you can really trust him. It doesn't work like that because basically, unless they are very clever and can advance a case which you haven't thought of, you will be left in the same confusion, the cacophony of different voices or different solutions to the problem. One answer might be you shouldn't deal with problems like that. <laughs> Don't worry your pretty head about it. Go back to worrying the guy in front of you as a paedophile, and then you might be able to listen to <laughs> you might be able to listen to people who claim some degree of trustworthiness on that. And for everyday living, quite often we do put up with that kind of verdict. We know of people who can tell us the right time to plant the crops or to how we ought to dry. What's the safe speed limit? So a lot of our everyday life is conducted within either reasonably established boundaries of conduct, like how fast it's safe to drive or just everyday judgments for particular cases which lie in front of us. In which case, quite often, the consensus of decency and of what's appropriate to do can emerge. But a lot of ethics is dealing with crisis and conflict, clashes of civilizations and that sort of thing. And there, it's very difficult to get anybody who's got the same right to speak as the trustworthy scientist has proved his trustworthiness by reliability. You have no measure of reliability there. Then I think the question becomes very difficult and probably best avoided. That's very interesting because let's say we grant that it's very difficult to arrive at a reliable measure of truth in politics or ethics. Is that the same thing as saying the isn't truth in politics or ethics. So in other words, isn't there a, an important distinction to be made between our knowledge or our mm. ability to gain knowledge mm. about certain beliefs or claims no. or truths and whether those beliefs or claims are actually true? Good. This is a you know, $64,000 question. There are whole schools of philosophy which will give different answers to this. And um, the question you could say is whether truth transcends verifiability. So do we live in a world in which we want to say that there are truths, real truths you ought to believe in, which nevertheless transcend any powers, not just our powers, but any conceivable improvement in our powers of verification. And as you probably know, some of your listeners will know. Uh, there is a school of verificationists, which included the intuitionists in mathematics and went on right down to people like Michael Dummett to the right into this century, who gave a negative answer to that. They said, no, if you take, for example, a case of mathematics, we know that there are propositions that are unprovable within any orthodox, let's say, system of proof. Are they, are these truths or are they? neither true nor false. Now, a lot might depend on whether you can see an extension of what I've called our orthodox ways of proof, which would encompass the one or the take, take a famous example, very simple example, Gilbach's conjecture, which is that every even number is the sum of two primes. Remarkable truth, if true. Um, nobody's ever proved it and nobody's ever disproved it, as far as I know. That was certainly true five years ago. I didn't think I've looked since. And yet it's the classically somebody would say either it's true. Every even number is the sum of two primes or it's false. There's an even number, which isn't the sum of two primes. If we don't know which we've got to continue soldiering on until we get a proof. 
but it may be unprovable. May, there may be no way of designing a proof within orthodox mathematics, which gives you an answer. And then there may be two ways to go. One way, which you'd have a number series, number system in which it's true. Another way, which you have a number system in which it's false. And maybe there'd be a choice between one grounds of simplicity or usability, user friendliness or applicability, but it wouldn't be a purely mathematical decision anymore. It would be a decision which uh, bled into the practice of calculation, practice and measurements and things like that. So there's a big, big issue behind your question. Now, most of us are people who think there are truths, regardless how far our methods of verification go or could ever go, are often called realists. So they would be mathematical realists in the case of mathematics. Um, and all of us are realists, I think, to some extent. We're realists, for example, about history. We may never know which day of the week the last dinosaur died. There may be absolutely, almost certainly, absolutely nothing in the record which would give us a handle on that question. And yet, there's a stubborn idea that, look, either it died on a day which, counting back from us, seven weekdays, it was a Sunday or it was a Tuesday or a Wednesday. You think it, there must be a fixture to it. We think of the timeline and the death of entities as events with a place on that timeline. It's a real place. And if we don't know what it is, that's just our bad luck. And we can't find out what it is because we're not time travelers. That's our bad luck too. Our methods of verification simply are silent when it comes to a question like that. And I think that's not a bad place to stop because they are silent. It's a silly question to ask. And if you do ask it, you're not going to find an answer, which is a thing that makes it silly. <laughs> um, and furthermore, it's of no importance. And that of course is the difference between a question like that, a question in say politics or morals, where we think a lot hangs on answers and it's no good saying Look, if you take a contested issue, say the abortion issue in the United States at present, it's no good saying, we may never know the answer. You know, there's some people who think the uh, fetus's right to life trumps that of any, any difficulty for, or any disaster for the mother or others, family. Other people who say the, that the mother's rights trump any right of this little seed to grow within her. And we can't just say, oh, it's unverifiable, so let's let it go at that. You just try it in Arkansas, try it in New York. So these are questions which have become important. Now, you may say it's part of the unwisdom of our political culture that we let issues hinge on issues which can't be settled. Well, I think that's a thought as well. But the conservative side is going to say, no, that's just a way in which liberalism triumphs. In Britain, we don't think about the abortion issue, but that's because liberalism has triumphed. It's just nobody cares about it very much, very few people. As well as this problem about unverifiability, you get a, a question of almost a political expediency. What a, can we sideline? unverifiable questions and can we learn to live our lives without agonizing about them? I think we can, but other people will say, that's just a kind of ostrich-like method of avoiding hard cases. So let's explore this abortion topic a little bit more because it's suddenly become a massive issue after 50 years. So we have this leaked opinion uh, from the Supreme Court, first time in modern history that we've had an opinion leaked from the Supreme Court. And the idea is that they're going to overturn Roe versus Wade. At Roe versus Wade, the idea was that court found uh, a right to privacy inside of the American Constitution and said that right to privacy implies that there is a right to abortion and therefore no state uh, can pass a law which would infringe on a mother's right. Good. Now, the Alito's opinion says there is no such right. The American Constitution is silent on this question. There's the due process clause and it says you have a right to due process makes no explicit mention of the right to abortion, makes no explicit 
mention of a right to privacy. So as you say, we don't have a law in this case that tells us what to do. Now, it seems that the prime method of determining what the right thing to do was to say, let's trust the philosopher kings, being these nine judges who were appointed for life and are unelected. Now, what the court has said is, don't trust us. Don't give us that power. Mm. We trust you, the people. So mm. if you think in the particular area in which you live, mm. that the mother's uh, rights trump, then vote for politicians that support that view. Mm. If you think that this fetus has a right, well, then vote for politicians that support that view. Allow the democratic process, the wisdom mm. of crowds to get you to the true answer. And if it is the case that you've been implying that these normative questions about what's true, what is ultimately correct, is it about personal autonomy? Is it about the potential um, life of this being? If this is a vexed question that we can't reliably get an answer to, what method do we pick to find out? Is the democratic method the right method? In other words, let the legislators decide, let them create a law. Or do we say, no, trust the philosopher kings, trust those nine unelected judges to decide. They'll tell you what's true. <laughs> It would strike me as very odd that anybody trusts the Supreme Court. <laughs> very far from being philosopher kings, I think. If we look at the, the platonic entry bar for a philosopher king, it's very high. It includes, I think, something like 10 years of mathematics for start. <laughs> so, um, and in fact, Socrates thought, uh, in the Republic thought that this was never going to be met. There was no such thing as a philosopher king. And that's a pity. Um, but he certainly wouldn't have accepted the Supreme Court as an example. The, the sclerotic geriatrics of the Supreme Court, if I may compliment them, um, you know, they managed to make the Second Amendment, as it's framed in the Constitution, into an unbridled right to carry machine guns in shopping malls. And any court which can do that is not one of philosopher kings. So, so I'm afraid I lack the American deference to the Supreme Court. It's had very good people on it, unfortunately, many of them just died. So there we go. So actually, if unfortunately, the option, unfortunately, I could to be just as rude about that. I mean, trusting the people strikes me as, as dangerous and foolish as trusting the Supreme Court. That is the people, this is a people who will elect Donald Trump to be their president. And they're up against people in Russia who think that Putin's a, a model of wisdom. The people are very fickle and dangerous. Two cheers for democracy, I've always thought is right, because it is the haptic feasible system of government, which at least pacifies the people who are in government, <laughs> whose lot are winning at present, because it dangles in front of them the carrot that they might win in four or five years' time. And that's better than having a, a, a tyranny. But it has an awful lot of problems, as, as indeed the great Democrats have always known. But the, and the alternative is worse. It's, it's, it's the Churchill said famously, it's the worst system of government anybody's ever found except for all the others. So that's the problem. No, I, I understand the, the desire of the Supreme Court to stay out of this. And to that extent, I think it's a sympathetic judgment, but of course, it's going to alarm a lot of women very properly. And I think that actually, if we delve into the morality of it, not the legality and the, the constitutional questions and so on, I actually think that the woman's right to choose does trump any rights in heavily inverted commas that belong to a, a very young zygote and then fertile and then a very young fetus, which is smaller than for quite a long time, it's smaller than a grain of fennel. It's a very small thing. You can't say there's an acorn in an oak tree. And I think you can't say that a, an unborn fetus at a very early stage is a person and therefore has a person's rights. And there's no evidence at a very early stage, the fetus has consciousness, has expectations, has the values and the, the kind of life that falls under the usual umbrellas. Although well, it's very interesting that, you know, many people certainly in the United States, who trump the right, trumpet the right to life. 
uh, very happy with the death penalty and very happy with no gun laws, both of which are, well, death penalty is actually far less lethal than the um, absence of gun laws. And that kills thousands, but that's the United States for you. So as someone who is a big fan of objective morality myself and objective politics, I do think there's real answers to these questions. I think there's a real answer to the question of whether you should abort or not, or should allow abortions or not. I think I can agree with you that it might be quite difficult to know what that answer is, but I like the idea that there is an answer. And I like the idea that there is an answer as to the correct political system to adopt. I'm an anarchist. I really enjoy anarchism as a principle. It also seems like we can have arguments about this, right? So you've mm -hmm. just cited a principle about an acorn not being a tree, an oak mm -hmm. tree. We can cite, we can cite these sorts of principles yeah, and yeah, back yeah. and forth yeah. on it. And it seems like that is helpful and perhaps sufficient. So it might be enough that we can have these intuitions about principles that we put forward have mm. discussions, raise cult mm. examples, thought experiments. Yeah. Mm. Isn't that enough to arrive at what I want, at these objective moral truths and political truths? It's probably not enough to arrive at them. It certainly sounds like an exercise which is premised on there being an endpoint. There is a bullseye to hit. The philosopher who was probably most eloquent in denying that was Richard Rorty. He thought that a great deal of those sort of debates, social exercises in the sense that they were designed to foment solidarity, as he called it. That is to, it's very important to human beings. And I think this is a general truth in society to establish the extent to which we are one mind about something extent to which we're like-minded about this, that, and the other. And of course, if I have a mind, I think abortion is right or abortion is wrong, then I'll be anxious to try and gain a community which thinks as I do. And I might find myself out of sorts or out of, um, you know, unable to live the extreme with people who think otherwise. So the, he saw the exercises, which we think of as exercises in pursuit of the truth as actually exercises whose principal function was to establish solidarity. I'm not sure, that, I think that's a difficult proposition to unravel. It's a deep and profound idea, I think. I, I don't think it's, I don't think it's right in the way that Rorty put it forward, because I think when you simply find yourself in two minds about something, which in spite of your belief in objective moral truth, I hope you do, um, then it, it seems as though you can, you know, can lie awake at night, tossing, turning and wondering about the arguments. You're not trying to establish solidarity. You may, unless you, unless we take it a little bit metaphorically in which we say we, you find two voices in yourself pulling one way, one, the other. And you'd, you'd like to reintegrate them. You'd like to feel, you'd like to reharmonize things and find one voice where present there two. So you could see even your tossing and turning at night as, as an exercise of achieving a certain kind of solidarity with yourself or in yourself, we might say. The reason I don't quite like Rorty's suggestion is that it doesn't seems to me quite do justice to the depth and extent of self doubt that some people can feel, perhaps everybody can feel. That is, although some people seem not to feel it, particularly pol the political classes, but can't admit to self doubt because their entire stuck is based on convincing people that they're absolutely single-minded about X, where and Z, and they're absolutely right about it. And they, maybe they've atrophied their sense of self-doubt, so it's gone. But for those of us in the chattering classes, we can, I can be pretty sure, I'm pretty sure what I think about it. And I'm pretty sure that, you know, I don't lie awake at night worrying whether I'm right about it. But there is, as it were, a possibility that I'm wrong about it. 
which I'm certain I don't rule it out. I'm not deaf to it. For example, something I am deaf to, I think, as you do, that two plus two equals four. I am deaf or would be deaf to any dissenting voice. Suppose even somebody at Caltech or CERN at Zurich or whatever the great physicists that I said, no, we've discovered an entire aspect of reality or bit of reality at the micro level, the nano level, where two plus two is five. I honestly, I'm sorry, no, I'm, I'm lost. I don't, I can't process that. I can't add that into my stock of possibilities. As far as I'm concerned, that's just out. But if somebody says, look, there's possibility that there's other things you haven't realized about fetuses, other things you haven't realized about the dynamics of abortion, which suggests that actually it's, it's, it's right that it shouldn't be legal. It should be, it should be an offense. I'd say, no, I don't believe that. I'm certain my opinion, but I can't rule it out in the way that I can rule out two plus two being five. I can't say with my hand on my heart, I can't make nothing of that. I don't know what you're talking about because I can make something of it and I do know what you're talking about. And that would be true even if I know I've got solidity on my side, even if I know that virtually everybody in my milieu or everybody I care about has the same view about abortion. So solid solidarity isn't the problem. Still, there's the little thought that truth may transcend our methods of verification. There may be truth. Now, I'm not very inclined to think that in the case of ethics. I've taught myself to be much more of a, a much more interested in the process of argument than in the product, which is the truth. I think, I don't think we've got an independent handle on this bullseye, on this product that we're aiming for. Whereas every day we're involved in processes of argument and worry and even self-doubt if we're not politicians. So I think, you know, it's an area where I feel I've got work to do. I've been over 50 years in the profession of philosophy. And for a lot of that time, I've thought about truth. I'm still a little bit open-minded at various points. <laughs> so Anthony Appiah has this book called What If? And the idea is acting as if something is true, even if we're uncertain. And one of the famous cases is imaginary numbers. So imaginary numbers, square root of minus one, and we say it's impossible, but it turns out if you pretend that imaginary numbers work, you can do things with them. You can get planes to fly. Should we be doing that in the realm of ethics and aesthetics? So we say, look, we don't know really what the right thing to do is. Maybe there is no fact of the matter. Maybe the moral nihilists are correct. That there's nothing right or wrong inherently in the nature of our universe, but we should pretend that there is. We should have some kind of consensus, maybe not grounded on truth, but grounded on some other kinds of values of things seem to be smoother when we agree not to kill each other, when we agree that you should tolerate certain kinds of behavior, not others. Mm. Now, is it okay for us to do this pretend work in the realm of ethics? And then if I think about aesthetics, the examples that you gave us earlier of someone who's very good at identifying certain facts, in other words, they can tell us whether a painting is uh, a replica or not. But that's different from someone who's telling us whether it's any good or not. And so I wonder about that. In other words, someone who says, look, I've listened to every single work of Beethoven. I have an appreciation for it. I write very lyrically about it. I can persuade you why this work of music is better than this work of music. And that if you like this, you have bad taste. We say that makes sense. We should act as if the critics are right. Or do we just say it's all bunk? Or it's all, uh, you know. That's your taste. This is mine. De gustibus lunis, this pretender. Yeah. Several things there. In the case of ethics, of course, the fact that the fact that we do well by consensus is itself an ethical fact because the fact that we can live together successfully by, for example, a system that um, contains measures for enforcing contracts and that contains fairly defined cases where things are going wrong and social penalties are exacted and so on. However, they, whatever form they take, that may be a different matter. 
I think th those facts are themselves important ethical facts. And of course, for utilitarians, they were the only kind of fundamental ethical fact. The, the fundamental ethical fact was the maximization of human happiness. And if, if things like concord, peace, security, safety, if those are con essential components of happiness, then any system which produces those is an ethical system as far as it goes. They have other flaws and we may need to adjust it, but it's doing well. So there is that. In the case of aesthetics, it's very hard. And I think there, there's no, as it were, nothing that even approaches the kind of possibly a slightly boggy bedrock, that's such a mixed metaphor, how that there is in the case of living together, where things like safety, security, peace, the possibility of happiness, as the constitution says, is constitution of the, well, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Where does that phrase come? Is it the constitution or, yeah. Okay. In the case of aesthetics, I think for long periods, people have felt that things like harmony, beauty, melody, in the case of music, ruled the roost. But then, of course, the 20th century especially tried to blow all that up. Uh, atonality, lack of harmony, uh, lack of melody became signs of the avant-garde and signs of the patience from an old and crypt conception of musical excellences. And similarly in painting, obviously figurative painting gave way to expressionism and gave way to abstraction. I, I think that it's no accident that I chose as a sort of litmus test for the expert that he was right about some question of fact. When you're absolutely right to pick that out. It's not that he showed himself expert on questions of artistic value. But I think anybody who's read and profited from the work of a good critic can, can understand that even in questions of valuation and just enjoyment, there are things to learn. Your first reaction may not be your best reaction. You can get to a position which you would otherwise regret. One of my absolute prime examples of great critic doing this his, he's slightly fallen to disrepute i still think he was a great critic was fr leavitz who wrote a book about who wrote a book a paper about reality and sincerity in art and then it and i think this is a paradigm of how you might overcome complete skepticism about matters of taste he presents three poems one unknown poet called Alexander Smith, one by a better known poet, Emily Bronte, and the third one by Thomas Hardy. They're all roughly Victorian, uh, 19th century anyhow. I think this, I think this, this 19th century, it might be 18th century, late 18th century, but it's anyhow. Um, and he invites you to read them and you read them and he says, virtually everybody's going to say that the Bronte is a more sincere, a more real, deeper e expression. They're all, all about grief. Firstly, everybody's going to agree that the Bronte is a deeper and more sincere and more realistic, truer expression, truer expression of grief. The Alexander Smith is a kind of declamatory. Levis called it a debauch. It's an indulgent sentiments. It, it's a sort of, it, it enjoys its own sort of abasement in grief. Emily Bronte doesn't. And this is truer to people's experience of grief. And then Levy says, many people will fail to see the heart of say, or judge that the Hardy is a better poem than Emily Bronte's. But I think I can show that in the same way that the Bronte beats up Alexander Smith, Hardy beats up Bronte. <laughs> and he proceeds to do, he, he makes it apparent that there's still what you might call theatrical elements in the Bronte. She's uh, putting on a face of dignified heroism. She's certainly avoiding the wallowing, the borch of grief that Alexander Smith gives us. It's still in a sense of theatrical poem. It's a, it's a declamatory 
Whereas the hardy is simply somebody confronting his own grief. And that makes it almost intolerably moving. It's all wonderful, though. It's about his uh, dead wife talking to him like a ghost, luring him back to the places that were a great poem. Now, I think that's a paradigm of a way that you can learn that somebody's worthy, you know, go back to my meta, <laughs> learning who's trustworthy. You know, a critic who could do that for me is somebody I want to listen to. He's somebody that's shown by as a superior close reading of what he's talking about. But my own first sense, I can't see much difference between Emily Bronte and Harvey, was crass. It was something I'm glad to have overcome. I don't think I could prove it to anybody, but if you follow the journey, you could be glad that you've arrived at the end. You've overcome your initial um, coarseness. And I think the same could be true. Lots of people going around the National Gallery in Washington for the first time might think that Renoir is a fabulous painter. And he is, he's a fabulous painter. But I think Cezanne is actually a better painter. And I think if I was attempting to show that Cezanne was a better painter to somebody, I'd try and show that there are respects in which you think Renoir's better than, say, Murillo, who is coarsely sentimental. Cezanne is never sentimental. Renoir sometimes is. So you go. So there's the same kind of dynamic possible. So I think although, again, we might be completely skeptical about the existence of the bullseye, the final judgment, God's judgment, the last word, putting all these painters or poets or musicians on ladders and so-and-so's at the bottom and so-and-so's at the top. Nevertheless, I think there are is that the exercises of judgment are terribly worthwhile. Nobody ever regrets having profited from and I think that's important. So a long-standing debate between Mark and myself is over the value of psychoanalysis. And <laughs> as you were discussing this, I thought <laughs> this is exactly what I've been trying to say to Mark, but failing, oh. is that if you undergo the journey by the end of it, you will have profited by it and you will regret your previous coarseness of your position. So Mark's position is that psychoanalysis is valueless. Uh, and my position is that it could very well be valuable in the hands of a good psychoanalyst in a very similar way to giving poetry over to a good critic. So I, I really like this idea of uh, this very careful, principled, methodical look through a person's life, through their thoughts and feelings and their mm. personality and coming to conclusions and interpretations, which mm. elicit more and more insight. <laughs> Wonderful. I'm told here because I somewhat have Mark's view about psychoanalysis, <laughs> but I have to confess that's based on very few acquaintances, not even close friends, but acquaintances who've undergone it and are not conspicuously improved, although they think they have. <laughs> so so um, I'm certainly very skeptical about the theory, at least the theory as it occurs in Freud. I think that's, there's a lot of nonsense there. But of course, I suppose my view is that if you d ditch the theory and just have a patient listener, that may be very good for a lot of people a lot of the time, because the patient listener is, I think the psychoanalysts call it transference, but it, it's an imaginary friend. And just as children need imaginary friends, I think adults need imaginary friends. So, <laughs> sorry. So, so I'm, I'm skeptical about the actual theory and credentials and so forth of psychoanalysis. I'm not sure it's any worse than any other of the other trappings of the medicalization of mental issues. As you probably know, the um, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the American um, Psychological Association is, I think it's now something like 900 pages. It started off about 100 pages at DSM-1. And now in DSM-5, it's six, eight 
10 times bigger and the subdivisions and new divisions and new categories of mental health problems have, have just expanded. Curiously enough, at about the same rate as the pharmacological industry has expanded. So there's nothing like finding a, a, an illness to sell a drug which cures the illness. That goes back to some of your doubts about the trustworthiness of, um, of science right at the beginning when you said that it's not the Popperian clean. I hypothesize, you refute, I improve my hypothesis, you refute it and we go on as long as we can and that way progress is made. It's not like that at all. And, and the forces of commerce and the forces of vanity and of course, tradition share habits of deference to authority can all stand in the way. The, some of the stories, well, you seem to have them at your fingertips. So we'll go on, but I think in his book, is it, is it called Bad Men? There's an English author who, and oh gosh, my memory is getting terrible. Then certainly you could edit that bit out. He describes 52 papers. This is a meta-analysis of 52 papers on the relative merits of different painkillers. And in every case, the painkiller belonging to the sponsoring company, the company sponsoring the trial came out top, <laughs> which, <laughs> which means of 52 painkillers, each one is better than the others. And the wonderful thing about that, of course, is it's immediately a litmus test for unreliability or untrustworthiness. You immediately know that kind of science sponsored in this case by big pharma is very unreliable. So if you want a reliable account of painkillers, you can't go to the people who are selling them. And that's not surprising. So I want to put aside my, my indignity at, at the attack on psychoanalysis that I'm getting from both sides. And <laughs> I, I want to finish by returning to your original case. So it's, what's interesting is that when one takes the position that it's very hard to verify or through some other method, arrive at knowledge of truth in a certain area, we've been talking mm. about politics, ethics, aesthetics, medicine, psychology. But I want to uh, return to the area of religion. What's interesting is when you can't arrive at truth very easily, we think that combined with the claim that there's a certain burden of truth might then decide the matter. So a lot of people feel that there's a burden of truth on the theist to argue and provide good evidence that God exists. And in the absence of that evidence, we would say, because we can't find that evidence, we should conclude as a working framework for life that God doesn't exist. So sometimes the absence of good evidence for truth gives us the truth. Um, and the truth decides not in a neutral way, but against one's. I think as a general um, rule, that does have application. I suppose there are 20 runners in a race. And somebody announces that a particular horse is going to win it. The absent any evidence for that, the default is no, don't believe that. Don't certainly don't put your shirt in it. There may be evidence for it, in which case that's it. But if there isn't, then of course the default is no. Now, of course, people who invented gods and there are any kind of numbers of gods they've invented, as the Greek gods, the Norse gods, the uh, gods of Hindu is a Christian God, the Islamic God. If there's no evidence for any of them, then the default again is not to place credence in any of them. Each of them is a bad bet, so we might say. However, I think there's a more important point here. I don't like the debate as it's constructed, as in fact you, you constructed it or you described it, which is between the theist who says there is a God, the atheist who says, no, there's not. And the agnostic says, we don't know. That I think is the, the classic way of thinking about that. And many people would accept it. And the new atheists, people like Christopher Hitchens, Dan Dennett, whoever else there was, Richard Dawkins, uh, Sam Harris in the United States. These new atheists were very proud of going around announcing the death of God. There is no God as if 
that was news to anyone. The, it seems to me that that's a badly framed debate. And the reason it's badly framed, I think, is, can be seen in the wonderful dialogues that Hume wrote about uh, dialogues concerning natural religion. Strongly recommended. It's the only really funny philosophy book that's ever been written. And it's a wonderful, very gentle run through all the arguments, all of them. And it ends on a very strongly infidel note. Hume doesn't end up endorsing any faith at all. But he doesn't say there's no God, or there is a God. And the reason is that he's, in effect, eviscerated the question of any meaning. Is, uh, and the way he does this is to say, look, the, what people ask of the God is inconsistent. On the one hand, you want the tribal God, the God of Abraham and Isaac, the one who wins battles, the one who's going to answer your prayers, who cares for you. He's the, the omnipotent father in the sky who looks after you and he's going to make sure that in the end, everything's lovely. Right. Now, the other thing you want is the creator of heaven and earth, creator of everything. Now, that's got to be something very different. It's got to be something whose existence is not contingent upon anything else. It's got no father, it's got no mother, it's got no creator, it's got no dependencies. And it's changeless in most theological traditions. It, you know, God of the philosophers is timeless. It's outside space and time. It's nowhere. And it's no, at no time. It's not the kind of thing which can stub its toe or get cross or love. So it's very far above and beyond. It's a bit like, say, the number seven. That's timeless. It doesn't change. It doesn't do anything. It's, it's nowhere have a spatial location. And the dialogue, it has, he has two kinds of theists in the dialogues. One is going for that God, the God of the philosophers. The other is going for the tribal God, the God of Abraham and Isaac. And he just shows them absolutely conflicting. You cannot have the, both those conceptions of the deity. So you can opt for one or the other. But which one you opt for will then be, in a sense, neither here nor there. The upshot is that you don't want to stay, say that this God exists. You don't want to say it doesn't exist. You just want to say, that's not one of my words. It's not a, it's not a category I can usefully apply to anything in this world. It's not even consolatory when I think about it properly, because I've got no there's no reason to be consoled by the presence of God that doesn't love, doesn't care, doesn't hear, doesn't introduce himself. They are subsentia, the absent God. That's not even an imaginary friend. It's not any kind of friend. Although people do think of God as an imaginary friend, I don't join them. I don't necessarily want to change them any more than I want to change my children when they have imaginary friends or require to cuddle their cat teddy bear when they go to bed. I think it's rather cute. Join in. So I call myself an infidel. I don't join in. I don't call myself an atheist. <laughs> People think of me as an atheist. And of course, if there's a team, one of the three, theist, diagnostic or atheist, I'm much more an atheist than anything else. But I think of myself as just not joining in. I'm an infidel.